with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Hello. It is Monday. It is September 19th. You know, um, the U.S. Constitution was signed on September 17th of 1787. Under Article 7, um, it wasn't official until it was ratified. And ratification required a ninth colony, former colony, to sign. And New Hampshire finally did almost, what, nine months later on June 21st of 1788, the following year, New Hampshire signed. And the Confederation Congress had chosen March 4th of 1789 as the date that it would become fully operational. So our country began to operate as a country on March 4th of 1789. <clears throat> but when was it first published? When could people first see the Constitution? Well, it was September 19th, 1787. It was two days after it was fully signed. The Congress had no ability to publish, so it was published by, literally, a publisher. The Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser published in full complete the Constitution that had been signed just two days later on September 19th. So it was exactly 245 years ago today that people first saw their Constitution. It's an interesting little factoid that people couldn't really see and read formally what had just been passed until it was published by a private publisher. All of the, the preamble, which talks about our common defense, is very relevant to the guests that we're going to have on in the first half of our program today, as is Article 1, which gives only Congress the ability to declare war. We often didn't follow it. The executive branch sometimes went off on its own. The commander-in-chief under Article 2 is the president of the United States and often didn't wait until Congress had formally declared war in order to use the power of war. Our guest today has been studying, since the loss of his own legs in war, the motivations behind the U.S. going for the ultimate declaration of animosity towards another sovereign nation, war. Our guest today has written a book that we're all going to be introduced to right now. I was just introduced to it over the last few days, trying to read it. <clears throat> um, by way of disclosure, I've only made like uh, headway into about 30% of it, but enough to really, I think, understand the thesis. And the thesis, which we're going to hear about, is an exposition of how our zeal for war is often not a reflection of an honorable value that we as a nation are vindicating, but rather it is all too often a reflection of the greed of a ruling elite who have the power to convene the war machine and who can benefit financially and through power and through prestige from the harvest that they take through war. Our guest who has written about this is the Honorable Alan B. Clark. The name of the book is Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money, 
wars and the ruling elites, and we are really glad to welcome Alan to our show. Hello, Alan B. Clark. Well, hello, Buzz. Thank you so much. You know, you've covered a lot there that we could probably spend the rest of the program just talking about the very fine uh, summary of the uh, Constitution becoming public. Well, I think uh, that your your you, the summary of what your thesis is is. It's pretty remarkable, and I'm sure we're going to have lots to talk about in that regard. I, I guess the first question, I want listeners to be introduced to how, uh, to who you uh, are and how you became who you are. So let's start with your having enlisted and what happened to you during Vietnam. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, I always want to go to West Point since I was eight years old. I uh, applied for West Point. I went to Phillips Exeter Academy, which is up uh, north of Massachusetts, obviously, Exeter, New Hampshire, and left after 11th grade. So I'm a high school dropout, went to West Point, class of 1963, youngest man in my class, graduated before I was 21 to get a regular Army uh, diploma, uh, regular Army uh, commission. And I volunteered for Vietnam in 66. When you volunteer to go to war, they let you do it. So I went in, uh, airborne qualified, regular Army officer, captain just before I got there. Uh, I was trained as a prisoner of war interrogator. Uh, no prisoners to interrogate. So I transferred to Army Special Forces, and I put me in clandestine uh, positive collection of intelligence against Cambodia. I had an incredibly interesting job uh, all the way through 10 and a half months of service, almost over, when my uh, special forces camp in Vietnam came under attack. Uh, during the middle of the attack, I was the American that was alert and on duty trying to get counter-battery fire on the enemy and flares up in the air. Uh, and I, it's not to brag, but I got recognized with a silver star, which is our third highest decoration. And uh, a, a mortar hit just to my left rear, best I can figure, took off my left leg traumatically below the knee. Right one was broken in five places. It wasn't going to last. Lasted 10 days, took that off. So I've been a double-leg amputee since 1967. But by the grace of God, I lived. I lived. You lived. You survived. We're glad <laughs> that you did. <laughs> yeah, me too. My, my family is too. <laughs> I'm sure that it took more than just, um, you know, a Band-Aid here and there for you to survive. It isn't just a terrible physical loss, the loss of both your legs. It's also a psychic insult that uh, many of us would have a lot of trouble getting over. How did you get over it? Well, um, Buzz, I, I was in a hospital for 15 months. I had 12 surgeries then, eight, eight afterwards. I've had 12 surgeries. I still carry a little bit of shrapnel in me. I set off the machines, you know, when I go through um, the, the airport uh, turnstiles and so forth. Um, but the worst part about my stay was during the, at, at the end of the eighth month, I was I broke down. So for four days, went without sleep. I can promise you, if I keep you awake for four days and torture you, uh, you're going to you're going to uh, break. And so I broke, had to go to a close psychiatric ward for 14 weeks. I got out and I kind of slowed down a little bit, had to see a psychiatrist for seven years and have the antidepressants. But by the grace of God and by my by my own faith, everybody has their own faith or no faith, whatever. They can do what they want to. My Christian faith is what brought me to a healing position to get through my PTSD, stop seeing psychiatrists, and stop taking antidepressants. So I've gone on to a rich and rewarding life, and which has recently been, you know, the, the product has been three books, this latest one being my Soldier's Blood and Bloody Money book. I've been busy the rest of my life, 55 years. That that it's just a very inspirational story, Alan, and I'm I'm just uh, honored to be talking to you. You, I, I read uh, a, there's a number of luminaries who um, wrote little blurbs in the beginning of your book and at the end of your book as well. But uh, I was particularly struck by Bill Moyers. Bill 
um, whom I've always respected, had great, he was a former press secretary to Lyndon Johnson, and he wrote, when I first met Alan Clark in the early 70s, I instantly knew this was a young man struggling to come term, to terms with his experiences, to make sense of great tragedy and the conflict of his country's claim on his allegiance and the consequences of what he thought was his patriotism. His spirit touched me then, as does this book now. He is an unusual American and a pilgrim whose quest the reader will find poignant and illuminating. So let's talk about your quest. How did you go about making sense of the motivations of war? Um, well, uh, by being a double-leg amputee, Buzz, I, I obviously don't run. Uh, I walk with a walker in my neighborhood to get exercise, and I have an extra cycle that I use my arms with, but I don't I don't play golf, you know. I don't do all these different things that people do physically that takes up valid amounts of time. So I've had time to, to be scholarly, if you would call it that, and to read a lot. So I began to really be be plagued in a way by the things that I picked up about, you know, what's the real story about why this war started, the, 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 the story behind the story for American Revolution, Civil War, Spanish-American War, a banana wars in Central America, and so for banana and oil wars in Central America. So I began to collect these books, start to study it, and I said, gosh, I've got to tell this story. Now, I've got to start with the background of all the religious wars that we had three and 400 years ago, and I've got to analyze uh, what these religions were all about and why we've had those kinds of wars and who's been behind this what uh, groupings have been behind it and i discovered that industrialists and war merchants and politicians and lawyers and bankers have all had their parts at various times and in various amounts of money and relationships to to urge on and encourage and, and as a minimum profit from wars either in monetary monetary or power or greed fulfillment so as i began to get through that i said man i've got to spend the the remainder of the years of my life, starting six years ago, to start to write this book and get it published. It's very political. It's very controversial. A lot of socio-political in it. And, uh, you know, I just gave up on any publisher publishing it. I didn't want to have a bunch of people that said, no, we can't do it. So I just self-published it. So it's on Amazon, self-published paperback. But my heart and soul is in it. You know, it's a really scholarly book, but it's a book that tells citizens what in the world has been behind wars in the past to give us an opportunity to question wars before we go to war again. And, you know, many of these wars, like you said, they were not never really declared. There was no sovereign country necessarily that we had to go against when we went into Iraq or Afghanistan. It was a movement that we went against. That's so true. You use this term cupidity. What is cupidity and why do you think it's important in your analysis of the motivations of war? Yeah, well, you know, cupidity really um, relies on uh, making, taking advantage, um, profiting from um, ego, et cetera. And, and the definition specifically out of the dictionary is, uh, you know, greed, taking advantage of blah, blah, blah. I don't have that exact definition. I think you're right. I think it's but, greed. Yeah, yeah, it's mainly greed. And so, you know, I, I divide the people of the world into three groups, the sheep, and I'm a member of the sheep, okay, and then the wolves are the ones that profit upon the sheep, and then the serpents, they're the real bad guys, if you want to put it that way, the serpents out there, and it goes back to the uh, Adam and Eve story, the serpents are the ones really kind of behind it all, they're the ones that, that profit from wars and uh, conflagrations and um, and people doing bad things more than anybody else or any other grouping. So 
there are people that are wolves that, that make money and they don't necessarily have any horrible reason for doing it. But those that are the serpents, they have a specific reason. And I believe behind everything, and I address this in, in some of the beginning chapters of my book, Buzz, and that is the spiritual aspect of good versus evil, which is the ultimate expression underlying some serpent or some wolf for what they do. Uh, not caring about who they hurt, not caring about who they take advantage of, and making money anyway. Yeah, you talk about the ruling elite. Um, even on the, on the cover of your book, Wars and the Ruling Elite. And in, in, in talking about who manages to m manipulate circumstances into war, you, you, you talk about them. We, we have, we're going to be taking a break in about a minute and a half, but can you talk to us about who the ruling elite are and their relationship to the war machine? Yes. Well, to, to begin with, anyone that the bankers that make money and, and in the past bankers have made money by lending to both sides in uh, in wars in the past. OK, so uh, they make money. Obviously, munitions, uh, armaments people uh, around the world, they've made money. And so they don't necessarily that sometimes they have propagated the wars I've discovered. I've written a little bit about that. But the important thing is that they surely don't mind that a war starts. I found out that bishops in England were actually on the boards of directors of armaments company, con, uh, companies. I can't believe that, okay? But that was a religious or a religious person being on an armaments. And industrialists, have, have, have during World War II especially, there were instances where they made money by uh, selling certain things to the Germans surreptitiously, maybe running it through Spain, who was a neutral country. And that really burned me up when our people were dying on the battlefield and in the um, in the in the foxholes in Europe, uh, and and they and, and our some of our countries were making money. That really got to me, as well it should. His name is Alan B. Clark. He has written a book, Soldiers' Blood and Bloodied Money: Wars and the Ruling Elite. We're going to take a break and be back with Alan and talk more about war and the ugly origins, all too frequently. Right after these messages, stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Will Northampton save the St. John Cantius Church Building? Will it use CPA funds for this purpose? We'll hear the latest from one of the proponents working to save this historic building. Arnold Levinson will be our guest Tuesday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. This week's Shop Tuesday is Pristine Orientals. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Pristine Orientals releases gift certificates for their rug cleaning service. Pristine Orientals chemical-free rug cleaning process leaves no odor and no residue. Your rug gets a gentle bath. It's really the only way to treat a rug. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Pristine Orientals Rug Cleaning, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. 
Join Mark Patrick seminars and lose the weight guaranteed for only $49.99. Hypnosis designed to stop disordered eating and cravings. Also, you can stop smoking with Mark Patrick seminars. Hypnosis can destroy your desire to smoke without cravings, irritability, and weight gain, or your money back. Join the over half million others who have attended. Seminars are Monday, October 3rd at Hotel Northampton. The weight loss seminar is at 5.30 and the stop smoking seminar is at 8 p.m. Go to markpatrickseminars.com to learn more. It's the 14th annual Tom Kazenzi Driving for the Cure Charity Golf Tournament to support Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on September 27th at Twin Hills Country Club. To get involved, visit us online at TomKazenziDrivingForTheCure.com and together we can make a difference. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov WIC, brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHM. And we are back with Alan B. Clark, who has written the book Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money, Wars and the ruling elite. A lot of us have a strong ideological feelings about matters such as war, as well we should. But this man uh, knows what he's talking about because he's lived a lifetime uh, with the consequences of war and with the consequences of trying to understand what brought him to that moment when he lost both of his legs. Alan, thank you for being with us once again. Um, so I wanted to ask you about uh, this notion. We go back to this notion of the ruling elite. The, in this country, it seems that more and more and more the distribution of wealth um, seems to grant more power and prestige, not just money, but the ability to affect uh, policy to those people who have financial resources that most of us don't. And your research, um, since you do have so much time because of your um, disability that was caused by your patriotism, has led you to a place where you think that they abuse that privilege that they, that money gives them. So I'd like to hear more from your perspective about that. Well, you know, I, I think we need to accept today the, the reality of the, of the American political and governance system is that there that money runs the system buying ads buying yard signs all the everything that you do to, to win races you know buying buying television ads and so forth and uh, getting people out there to talk for you remember these things cost money uh, they they love the, the, their campaigns are directed i ran for treasurer of the state of texas in 82 so i have personal experience with this these lobbyists are on there are more lobbyists up there than there are elected politicians in Washington DC and these lobbyists have to represent pharmaceutical companies uh, different industries different banking associations and represent different uh, ideological groups as you were talking about so they 
uh, put money into the campaigns um, or, and, and the people that are in those groups put money into campaigns. So they have to be listened to. You can't say, I don't want their money. Uh, I'm not going to listen to them, but I'm going to take their money. That's very difficult to do. So uh, that's one of the major problems that we have in the country today is is the money that's behind everything. And so if you have money and you have big money, you put it into the packs or you put it in individual campaigns, you can control the the controllers who are the people in Congress and in the Senate uh, that write the laws that we have to live under. Um, that's kind of it in a nutshell as to how I feel about that issue. It's a really, it's a really poignant um, reminder of what we all know to be true, which is the role that the dreaded dollar often pays plays in 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 policy what what strikes me in looking through your book and looking through your experience is how many young people have been sacrificed in this thirst for power and satisfaction of greed it's it's an incredible statement about our system isn't it that that people who are so young are sent to war yes well yeah, you know, 18, 19, the service academy graduates, OCS graduates, um, ROTC, et cetera, uh, they become officers, much less the, the people who really run run the military, and that's the non-commissioned officers and the enlisted that go in. We go in for a variety of reasons. Patriotism, in my case, family tradition, in my case, they go in, well, I just want to get away from home. I want to see the world. I want to travel. I want to uh, feel good about myself. I, I want to uh, I want to find skills. I want to cultivate yeah. skills. And, and and a lot of them have been able to do that if they've come back. So so we go in for a variety of different reasons, and we don't really know what's going on. I was talking to somebody else today. There is not enough what I would call indoctrination in its good sense, in other words, sharing information about us that go to war, about why in the world were we in Vietnam to start with. We should have had briefings. I did as an intelligence officer, but the majority of the people did not. Why in the world are we here? What's the history of what's going on here? Why is this happening? What is their side of the story? Why are we fighting them? Same thing uh, with Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm not sure we ever really knew. The country says, go to go to war, take your weapons, protect, uh, take care of each other, uh, kind of watch, be, be careful about collateral damage. But a bunch of us don't know what in the world we're there for. And the collateral damage of other than combatants, Buzz, is worse and worse and worse by numerical numbers. Look how many people that read China and Russia during the communist purges killed in their own country through starvation or for political um, for political reasons to, in, in the gulags and so forth. Much many, many, many more than just died as combatants. So uh, the, the warfare is just such a horrible thing. It's almost like it's in our DNA. It, it really is terrible. The war in which you were wounded was, I think, 55,000 American lives. We're not talking about the number of Vietnamese lives. Um, yeah. But uh, there are almost, they say that there's 450,000 people whose psyches were broken. Post-traumatic stress is what we call it. It's a fancy word for a broken psyche be- because of not just the violence, but the senselessness that people find themselves uh being shot at and shooting others in. I guess, I wish we had more time. We don't. We only have a minute. But I'd, I'd like, first of all, folks, the name of the book is Soldiers, Blood, and Bloodied Money, Wars and the Ruling Elites. The author is the Honorable Alan B. Clark, who's on the phone. And I guess my, my question to you, Alan, is what do you want to leave listeners with? What's the, what's, what's the message that you want them to think about yeah. tonight? 
yeah, the, the main thing is, 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 is the combatants. Uh, you can go to combatfaith.com. That's my website that talks about my story of post-traumatic stress, other examples of post-traumatic stress, to help veterans and your family to, to know about post-traumatic stress. Second thing related to the book is question. Be a solid citizen. Uh, realize that you've got to be involved at the, at the political level for your city council, especially your schools right now, and all forms of, po- of political endeavor. Ask questions. Go to the town halls. Ask questions. Find out what, what they're all about. Pin them down and make sure that the politicians know you've asked the question. You've gotten an answer. You're on record politician and i'm going to be keeping my eyes on you and make sure that especially when we're leading up to war have we done everything we possibly can not to go to war and put our young people at risk and the collateral damage that's going to happen incredible message incredible message november 8th is the date that you vote and how do people how is your book actually published yet oh yeah of course yeah it's on uh Kindle Direct Publishing. You go directly to Amazon, Alan B. Clark, Alan Clark, and Soldier's Blood and Bloody Money. It's it's there. Please there go, go and buy it. And I've <laughs> and I've got a, a copy of it and inscribed by the author Alan B. Clark. Thank you so much for spending this more this afternoon with us, uh, Alan. And good luck with your book and good luck with everything else. Well, thank you so much. You're such a a wonderful person to give me the opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you, and goodbye. You're inspirational. Bye-bye, Alan. We are going to be back with Megan Zinn and her guests this week right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The Afternoon Buzz is brought to you by Lundgren, family-run since 1964. Experience it in Greenfield. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Massachusetts taxpayers will receive their share of a $3 billion statewide tax refund this fall. The state auditor finished her report, and Governor Baker says he wants taxpayers to receive what could be hundreds of dollars each in the form of direct payments before the holiday season. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa says she doesn't agree with the law, but legislators must follow through on the returns. Every single one of our communities is trying to build something right now, and they're struggling with rising costs. And when the state is required to just send back checks, irrespective of whether a family needs a check or not, or it's actually benefiting anyone, you know, those dollars are spent in a way that doesn't really benefit the greatest number of people. Taxpayers could receive payments equal to 7% of the taxes they paid last spring. The Amherst Town Council will discuss a revised arrangement between the trustees for the Jones Library and the town at a meeting tonight. The proposal would allow renovations and expansion of the Jones Library to move on to the construction bid stage. The Finance Committee approved the agreement, which would supplement an existing memorandum that approved the project to go from 48,000 square feet to 63,000 square feet. The need for the amendment is due to inflation, which has caused the price to go from $36.3 million to an estimated $46.4 million. 
And the Big E continues today after a record-breaking weekend. The Expo reported there were 84,604 fairgoers on Friday, beating last year's opening day of just over 80,000. For the rest of today, mostly cloudy chance for showers and thunderstorms, high 76 to 80. Tonight, chance for evening showers and thunderstorms, otherwise mostly cloudy, overnight lows around 60. And the for Tuesday, partly sunny, chance for a shower, highs in the low to mid-70s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Minutemen football lives here. Olsen lops it. Josiah Johnson, end zone, touchdown, Massachusetts. Merriweather, daylight, end zone, touchdown, Ellis Merriweather from eight yards out. Follow the action all season long on your home for Minutemen football. The UMass Sports Network from Learfield. Touchdown, Massachusetts. Things to do with butternut. Roast it with butter and sage. Mash it with butter and maple syrup. Stuff it with quinoa, kale, and cranberries. And then there's curried butternut soup. Squash. The season is long, the recipes are endless, and River Valley Co-op is a fall festival of squash. Next time you're there, buy that squash you never buy. Kabocha squash or Blue Hubbard squash. Why? Why not? River Valley Co-op. Everyone is welcome, not just members. And everyone is wild about local squash. Why work for just any hospital when you can work for Cooley Dickinson Hospital? Winner of the Best Local Hospital Award by the Gazette 2022 Reader's Choice Awards, and right now they're offering a $7,500, yes, a $7,500 sign-on bonus for surgical techs and first assistant surgical techs. On-the-spot interviews are Tuesday, September 27th from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Cooley Dickinson Hospital, North Entrance, Route 9, Northampton, or visit cooleydickinson.org to apply. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back, and uh, as we opened with, this is the 245th anniversary today of the first publication of the then recently signed, just signed two days before on September 17th of 1787, United States Constitution. The Constitution was published and the people in Philadelphia and beyond in Pennsylvania who were literate and who were subscribing um, to the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertisers got to actually read on September 19th, 1787, the fruits of those secret discussions that had been going on for so long in Philadelphia in Independence Hall, resulting in the United States Constitution. The Constitution, I mean, beginning with the Declaration of Independence, which was, you know, it cited the 21 grievances, big, broad, headlined grievances against the monarch um, that uh, we were built against uh, in the, in eventually in our revolution. And um, what we were fighting was a kind of totalitarianism that stems from a monarchy where it's deemed that 
by virtue of divine right, we are all subjects of His Majesty, Her Majesty, um, who finally today was was buried. We now have a new king in Charles <clears throat> um, in in Great Britain. Here in this country, um, especially after listening to Alan B. Clark talking about the ruling elite, do we have totalitarianism in this country? I guess um, there was an article written by Richard Escow um, back in August, um, and he titled it Liz Cheney and Trump, Two Faces of American Totalitarianism. It was right after Liz Cheney had lost her primary so decisively in Wyoming for her re-election to the House of Representatives that he had said her electoral defeat is being regarded as the fall of an American hero. But he goes on to contend that the work that she's done on January 6th committee doesn't absolve her of all the other contributions she's made to creeping totalitarianism, totalitarianism that benefits our own oligarchies made up of the titans of industry and the like, of that less than three quarters of 1% who literally have access, literally have access and control over 70% of all American wealth. It's a staggering figure it's not my figure. It's put out the Bureau of Labor Statistics confirms the figure. You know, and it, any doubt about whether or not Liz Cheney's bitter feud with Donald Trump should be understood as part of a um, virtuous um, view of American society by Liz Cheney in which she wants to redistribute power and prestige and wealth to the greatest number of Americans possible. She may want to do that, but she believes the way to get there is by putting as much wealth in the hands of industrialists, the owners, the ruling elite, as possible, with that trickle-down theory that Ronald Reagan relied so heavily on in the backdrop. That, that is, if you leave enough money in the hands of the super wealthy, they're going to build the factories and employ the workers and use the natural resources in a way that lifts all boats in the harbor. She was a senior staffer in the Bush-Cheney administration. She served a president that did what Donald Trump couldn't do. He stole an election. I mean, the Supreme Court selected George W. Bush, and Dick Cheney over Al Gore. That was done in defiance of the Constitution that we are celebrating the anniversary of, or just celebrated the anniversary of on the 17th on Saturday. That Constitution, uh, it, was, it says very clearly it's up to the state to choose, C-H-U-S-E, its electors. It is not up to the United States Supreme Court to tell the Florida Supreme Court what under Florida law should be done in order to choose Florida's electors. Liz Cheney worked long and hard to make sure that her father was elected and that George Bush was elected. And she has, I think, I think 
97% of her votes are consistent with the, uh, the grading system that is used by the Federalist Society of votes by members of the House of Representatives. I she believe it's 93. extremely conservative. Dan is dying to challenge me on my assertion that Liz Cheney should not be. 93%. Yes. Just 93 right. That's the best you got? That's that the best I got. That's the best defense right there. there it's not 97. Only 93% of her votes were anti-people. Not 97%. Yes. Forgive me. So, so here is my take on it is that she believes in that traditional, traditional conservative values of tax cuts, businesses, that that's, that's what freedom is, Buzz. That's how you, that's how you grow, you grow the economy and you believe that. Now that's, that's at least a point where you could debate people. She's clearly willing to have a debate with the Democrats about how far the system goes. I guess she has a red line and her red line is if you incite, encourage and attack the very Congress that exists in the country that she's willing to then say, you know what, that's a bridge too far. We can no longer have a constitutional republic if that's how far you're willing to go to implement the very ideas that she believes in. So I guess in some ways she feels that the Constitution is more important than necessarily getting your policies enacted. I agree with that, Dan. Here's the problem. And, and with, she's well, willing well, to the location her. of your red line, it isn't just that ideological debate where we can debate what's the best way to make the economy float as many people as possible. That's true. But her votes are consistently not to help that democracy, as you're saying. Her votes are in favor of of voter suppression, uh, of stacking the courts uh, with people who are unqualified as long as they see things her, through her ideological lens. She uh, voted to illegally spy on millions of Americans and people across the world. The Patriot Act was one of her babies, her father's. Uh, she was she was, worked hand-in-hand hand with her father to make sure that... that um, the things that we think are really important in the First Amendment, in the Fourth Amendment, is not where her emphasis, where her priorities lie. She opposed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act recently. She defended those GOP laws that would if, if obstruct I, poor and minority voting. If I, could, if I could argue a defense, just for arguing a defense sake here on the radio, the vote on the Patriot Act was 98 to 1. So what she was doing had bipartisan support. Patriot too, we're talking about, but yeah, okay. Okay. Um, well, either way. And I mean, and, and the, those other things that she supported, I mean, was pretty main, at that time, it was pretty mainstream Republican policies that she believed in. I mean, it's the party has largely been inching to the right. And that, those are the things you're talking about. Um, you know, it, it's... Well, here's here's the counter of her being more of a centrist, right? Is this some in her party they want to gut the Voting Rights Act and did through the Supreme Court, right? Well, she's not necessarily willing to vote for everything in those bills. She's also not willing to support measures that undermine the entire electoral process, which is such a low bar. But she's willing to risk her political career, which I, I, you know, of all things, it's if she knows that if she were to toe the line, 
she'd probably get elevated right back up to where she was in leadership and leading this charge. She would gain a lot for not talking and speaking out of what she believes in. And you know, Well, here's some of the things that, that she believes in. She believes that the Justice Department should investigate the Sierra Club because of the damage it was doing to our economy by advocating for the environment. And by the way, also NRDC, Sea Change, and other environmental groups. Um, she, she said that the Sierra Club cared more about Russia and China's interest than it did about the United States because of those reasons. She, None of those are defensible, but go ahead, Buzz. Well, I could go on to a lot of what I think are indefensible. But are um, you willing to have a debate with her about it? Oh, I would love to have it. Liz, if you're listening, <laughs> you know, we are, it's drive time. There's a lot of people call who would in, love in their car. And call in, Call Liz. in, Liz. Liz Cheney, I'm going to reach out to her office. 413-586-7140, call us, Liz. We're well, you, ready. You know, I, I think the one criticism, which, again, I can't blame, I can't separate what her father supported and what she supported, although I'm sure she's aligned with her father on many things that I would disagree with. I Darth think, Vader you're talking about. Sure. Um, but you know, I, I think if she were asked, um, about civil liberties, I can't defend her positions, but you know, there's a large part of the democratic establishment and the Republican establishment that would find her positions to be rather commonplace and rather mainstream. And so it's hard for me to be so mad at her when her positions, while I find them, uh, disagreeable and wrong on a lot of positions. I mean, why would, why investigate the Sierra Club? I mean, they have uh, every right to be advocating for what they're advocating for. They're an environmental club. Um, so I'm in proposal with that. I think she draws the line of let's attack the very institutions that allow the debate to proceed. Tell me where I'm wrong, Buzz. I will right after the break. Oh, It is time to take a break. I have to catch my breath so I can tell Dan why he's wrong. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay tuned so you can hear why Dan is wrong. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. And it's taken me my whole life to celebrate. I won't It's happening here in the Valley. We're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues or demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 
Lundgren Honda. Experience it. Now, it isn't just one thing. It is everything you expect when you're looking for your next car, your first car, or to repair your car. Award-winning customer service, no-hassle, negotiation-free pricing, and friendly, familiar faces you know and trust with your vehicle. Rob Avery from Lundgren Honda. We're all looking to get the most for our money when it comes to buying gas. How is your gas mileage doing? Is it as good as when you first got your vehicle? Let Lundgren Honda help. We will have one of our technicians perform an express oil change service. It will change your oil and filter and fill the engine with the correct oil. Check and set the tire pressures to the proper specs and make sure that your air filter is clean. All of these make a big difference when it comes to gas mileage. Call, stop by, or make an appointment online. Consumer Satisfaction Award winners two years running. Lundgren Honda proudly provides you with an award-winning experience. See the latest selection of new and certified pre-owned cars at 409 Federal Street and LundgrenHondaOfGreenfield.com. Lundgren Honda of Greenfield. Experience it. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the afternoon buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, your message at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, your message at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. So we're returning uh, to our conversation, Dan Torres and I, about Liz Cheney. And the, without taking anything away from the good work that she's done on the January 6th committee, um, at the same time, um, I don't find that it, it it redeems Liz Cheney from all the anti-democratic, anti-civil liberties work that she's done in the past. And Dan, you were just talking about a front line that you saw. Yes. Yeah, so uh, earlier last week, I, I watched this show called Lies, Politics, and Democracy on Frontline. It's their latest episode. And uh, I recommend any listeners who want to kind of get a, a recap of what has happened in the last couple of years, especially focused on how the Republican Party changed uh, the leadership, uh, specifically back in 2016, 2017, and how it was uh, always willing to accept whatever, what, whatever Trump was saying or, or doing um, for political ends, as long as it was political expediency, they, they realized that the base was so beholden to whatever he was saying and doing that they were always willing to achieve the political ends, which is, let's get judges. You want pet tax cuts. This was between McConnell and Trump. Despite them not really liking each other, they, they used each other in some ways. And it kind of goes into that details of just how this relationship came about. And so I can't, you know, everything that you've described about Liz Cheney has been also supported and popularized by Republicans. And they have largely also supported those measures and backed them. Um, probably things that most of them, you know, I mean, most of them supported, but maybe didn't, maybe went, maybe they thought it went too far or something like that. But even so, they just kind of accepted it. And they, here's the scary part. They didn't pay a political price for anything that you're saying there. That should be scary to people, right? Because if you're thinking that, wow, this Republican Party's gone so far to the right that, that they're so out of the mainstream, the American people are not that extreme, 
And yet they're still coming out and voting. They're still winning elections. They did win the House, Senate, and the presidency back in 2017. Uh, I mean, the election in 2016. And they got to govern for two years, having the majority all across the board. And, and Trump did really well pre-pandemic, I heard. And I don't remember if this is in the documentary or, or I actually heard it on television on C-SPAN. He had 20% of the African-American vote across the entire country pre-pandemic, largely based on where the economy was going. This is like, must be February of 2020. Now, if you can capture 20% of African-American vote, you are, it's going to be a red tsunami unlike the likes that we have ever seen. But it didn't happen that way because the pandemic changed the dynamics and, and everything that comes from that. So my and only point... to Liz yeah. Cheney, uh, tie extreme, that up so, for me. Yeah, so I'll tie it up for you. So she is, ex- she is certainly extreme, but the party of the Republican Party keeps going to the right and is not being punished by Republican voters. They're endorsing it. And so it's how far to the right do they go before the American people say this is too far? That's and I don't know. Yeah, well, none of us know, but that is the nature of a totalitarian government is... Is often it doesn't reflect the values, the wishes, the ideological underpinning of the majority of people. I'll give you a quick, quick historical thing. 1964, Republicans ran a candidate against Lyndon Baines Johnson, mm-hmm. Goldwater. Goldwater. He got annihilated in the electoral process. Too far to the right. They had that famy, famous uh, Daisy ad. And they said, this man is too unstable, too extreme, too much of a radical libertarian to lead this country. And in 1964, this country said, yep, too extreme. We're going with LBJ. And it was a major wipeout for the Republicans. And, you know, the Republicans, I think in 72, also had the sort of reverse. Nixon went and defeated uh, the Democratic candidate that year. It was a massive landslide for Nixon. I think he won everything but one state. And so my, my, the, what scares me is that sort of balance that the American public has maybe had in prior generations where they thought candidates were maybe a little too extreme, that doesn't exist anymore. And at least for Liz Cheney, if I can make a defense here is to say like, hey, you know what? She's willing to buck her own voter base to say, you know what? Violence against the political system is wrong. And I'm willing to stand even to violate her own beliefs, advancing her own political ends. Well, Escal tries to explain it in his article. Richard Escal's article says, uh, he raises four possible explanations. One is that Cheney suddenly realized that the war on democracy, she, that her party, in your terms, mm-hmm. her family, mm-hmm. had waged for decades was wrong, and she mm-hmm. decided to do the right thing, so she joined this committee, and she bucked Trump. Or two, he says, mm-hmm. possibility number two, explanation number two, mm-hmm. is that she's very angry that Trump told the January 6th rioters to quote get Liz Cheney. Quote, she wants to get even. His exact words where he urged the crowd on. and he Is said, that confirmed? Yeah, quote, okay. we got to get rid of the weak Congress people, the ones that aren't any good, the Liz Cheneys of the world, quote. Yeah, okay. So yeah. I'd be angry too. If the president sure. of the United Maybe States personal. said that in a rally to his... By the way, that is not the first time that he went and called out a specific uh, candidate. Uh, no, it is He not. did it for Jeff Flake, another conservative in Arizona who, who people don't did. like. Yeah. Okay. Number three, once Trump turned on her, she realized that she would never win another primary. He, she decided to go out on a, a blaze of self-serving glory. Sure. How's that? And that's possibility number that is. three. And number four is that she, her father, and the many other 
who have labored under this, you know, behind the scenes to undermine democracy, to undermine civil liberties, like Dick Cheney famously and unrelentingly did, you know. <clears throat> they see Trump, both the individual Trump and the cult of personality of Trump as a threat to their own long-term plans. I tend to think it was number three or number four. Yeah. I tend to think that it was a self-serving, hey, I can look, I'm all pro-democracy, even though she had spent her entire career fighting the First Amendment. I think she would counter and say, we have different philosophical beliefs about what, what democracy is. And that's fine. Again, my, my point is, is we can fine? have that. Because you're supposed to be, at least in, a, in theory, supposed to debate what those values are supposed to be. She's right. not willing but to one enact per, violence. One vote per person, is, is that something you really want to... Do you want to take away well, people's ability to she, register and vote? She, is that really a, an ideological difference in what a democracy looks like, a representative democracy she looks be, like? She believes, no. She would be, argue that where the Democrats are trying to pass is legislation to entrench themselves in interests in favor of things. Look, she, there are constitutional protections in the Supreme Court and that guarantee people's right to register and to vote. She thinks this is a democratic power grab because some of that legislation says D.C.'s a state, Puerto Rico's a state, so that way the Democrats get four senators. That's how Republicans are interpreting, in my opinion, a lot of this legislation. That Well, you can argue that, Dan. I'm not arguing that. I'm arguing that that's what they're saying. That's what they believe. All right. Well, they can argue that, Dan, but the truth is that uh, the Voting Rights Act taking away Section 7, it just made sure that that's people are going to That's the Supreme Court, be, and, and I, I totally agree with that. Supreme yeah. Court. Well, we have run out of time. It's a shame because we're about to come to blows. <laughs> <laughs> that always works in radio, Buzz. <laughs> right. People can't see it. No, but they can hear it. They can hear it. It was great talking to you. Right. Listen, everybody, it was really uh, an enjoyable day for me. So I can't wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be an extremely interesting uh, show. I don't have time to describe it. So just enjoy your evening and come back at 4 o'clock tomorrow for the Afternoon Buzz. Happy talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. This is the Afternoon you Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a Live prevention local, lab at SaySomethingNow.org. for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.